Hi everyone, welcome to my Missionaires podcast. I'm Karina Givargas of the founder of Mission Magazine, the first fashion philanthropic interactive media platform. For fashion for beauty for good is our motto, our tagline if you will, in case you didn't know it already. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. I'm giving thanks today to someone that was just a delight to speak with, Iman Ayton. I had stared at her lovely face for a good part of this year as we put the human issue together. We have a biannual magazine as well. And I was dying to speak with her once we launched that. On the podcast, I got to learn how she felt on the 31st of May last year, when she really only went out to the local shops on an errand, but ended up being drawn towards loud sounds down the street, which turned out to be a protest march for Black Lives Matter. We also learn about how a random lady gave her, on the march, a megaphone, which she took, and then she was off. It was the beginning of her future. Please tune into this one. It's a really good one. I'm so excited to speak to you. I'm so, it's long overdue. Yay, pleasure for having me. Um, No, of course, of course. Um, I noticed in my research and, and when you were doing the article for us last time that you're you're not that close from from where I grew up and where I currently am. Is I'm in Ballum. Ah, okay. Yes, 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 yes. I know Ballum. Brilliant. Yes, yes. It's um, it's my childhood. Well, yeah, I grew up and went to school here, and I'm I'm back here now since COVID. Um, and it's yes, I actually just got back from America recently. Oh, amazing! Um, a few days ago, just to go there for a little bit for some. Um, the, off- the main office is there. The main hub HQ is there, really. Oh, wicked! Um, but um, yes, yeah. Um, mission came out of oh, my living room in my apartment in New York. Is it really? <laughs> oh, Karina, what a lovely story! Oh my god, that's amazing! And so you've been literally back and forth, England to New York. Yes, and the magazine you have that you you did that fantastic piece for. Um, that came out of my old bedroom in Ballum, this small little room that I'm in now. Oh my gosh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, well, not some big Condé Nast publishing loads of staff. Loads of yeah. <laughs> no, well, it looks amazing. Grassroots, we're very grassroots. You'd, you'd never know. You'd never know. No, exactly. No, exactly. But, um, and just for anyone who's listening to this, um, we got connected by someone that I used to work with at The Face called Mark Hooper. Yes. Um, who I know very well and um, was so just, the minute I started explaining what I was doing, he's like, oh my God, you've got to speak to Aman. She's just phenomenal. And you really are. You really oh, are, I have to are. say. Thank you so much. I'm, I was looking at your videos last week on, on just how educational and peaceful you talk um, when you're talking about really important topics. Um, and there's one thing that I saw a video that I thought was, was, it's such a it's such a difference how you approach certain topics that are extremely sensitive as well. And and I love that you said personally you believe in peace, mm. and that comes through when you're talking because it's very calm. And I just I feel and I I want to hear your thoughts. As I feel that you you get people's attention more and they pay attention more when there's no shouting and aggression attached to something serious topics. I totally agree. I find that a lot of people just tune off, even myself. I'll, if, if someone kind of seems a bit too kind of, I don't know, aggressive or, or just kind of there to rant, I usually switch off. So um, I just found that it's, what is it that I'm here to do? What is my agenda? And if my agenda is genuinely trying to connect with, with people and trying to educate people, then I have to do that in the kind of most palatable way possible. Um, and so that is my agenda to try to reach as many people as possible and not a lot of people respond to aggression <laughs> and sometimes it's not always the best the best approach I think that we can have these conversations without kind of having a slanging match and I think that's the most important thing to help build the conversation forward and that obviously means that there has to be a level of patience <laughs> that's for sure yes 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 and um I, for those who are listening in and and didn't read your fantastic feature. Um, I, I thought it was really fascinating um, how uh, America shaped your identity. So if, I'd, I'd love you to just expand on that, any new listeners we have on, on why that was such a pivotal moment for you and, and changed your course of direction in your life. 
Oh, I, I love that. I love the fact that it's something that I can talk about. And I think a lot of uh, black and brown people de definitely relate due to the fact that growing up in the 90s, I just felt like there wasn't much black representation in England in terms of a kind of go-to figure, um, a go-to black figure that was kind of all over the TV and all over the sitcoms and, and programs. I felt that they had kind of covered that area more so in America. And so I find that a lot of black people would look to find their identity as a black person from America because England was very much, and it's still in, in many respects, very much behind um, in regards to having that representation and having those black and brown faces out there in the different kind of institutions and, and positions. I think we're definitely behind in that respect. But growing up, it was amazing. One of my favorite programs was Sister Sister. I was addicted to it with Tia and Tamira. And I think most people know who they are on the planet because it was just a such, such an awesome program. And again, a perfect example of, of two black women um, at the height of their career in a very famous, popular program. Um, and they weren't kind of tied into these stereotypes or these specific boxes. And I felt that it was just really nice to just see a kind of normal, average <laughs> black person without all the kind of stereotypes that we now see today. So definitely in terms of building self-esteem, America was was fundamental in regards to, yeah, definitely in regards to building self-esteem for me as a black person. That's That was the biggest thing I would take away from growing up and watching American programs. Well, it's a very optimistic um, country and very positive country um, from from my experience of being there. It's um, whereas I think the UK can be quite cynical in, in many many aspects. But um, and then another thing that I've I found really interesting, um, and we'll get onto this in more detail, is is how you really came to form the Black Reformers Movement, um, and it was. I feel just it was meant to be with you because how you described coming out of your house, really just going to get a tube of toothpaste. <laughs> and then you became this incredible spokesperson for a movement founded. I mean, that's just that's bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> when you put it like that, Karina, yes, definitely. It's great hearing the story, um, you know, spoken back to me because when you put it like that, it it does sound really fortuitous. I mean, I don't I don't know how one goes out to get toothpaste and ends up, you know, in vogue and doing all of these amazing things and you know, with Madonna and her family. I've no idea how one decides to go about changing their life like that. I, all I know is I only had one intention of the day, which was going to get toothpaste. So yeah, I've I've no idea. But what a life changer. What but you were meant to, I've been since I started mission, I it's been really a hot a tough, tough long journey and, and now I'm I've become really you go with the flow and everything happens for for a reason and I'm a huge, huge believer in that now. Yeah, just so am I. I'm, I'm always talking upstairs to the higher powers, going, Come on, come on, sort it out. So I'm like so when when I read that, um I you know I I'm not saying it lightly to be disrespectful at all. I really connected to it because I just thought that whole, everything that happened that they found you, you were meant to do this. There's such a, there was a reason why, you know, that, that um, you're in the right place at the right time, but also it was the right person to do it. You know, you just, for you to pick up the megaphone, someone just handed you a megaphone to start to talk to people, but you're such a calming voice and presence and powerful as well that it had to be somebody on the day and it was you. And I just think that's that's bloody amazing, amazing. Thank you so much, Karina. It's it's been a fascinating journey. I when I, I look at it, yeah, when I when I really think about it and kind of delve into the last year and a half, it's just so surreal. And the, I think it definitely I think the biggest thing is is for me the biggest part of my journey was really delving into spirituality and I started to get really spiritual in March 2020 so literally at the start of the first lockdown and again like you I spoke to the higher power mine is the universe and so I speak to the universe and in March I actually asked the universe what my purpose was because I just found myself so lost it's been many years and I was 29 at the time and I just felt like all the things I wanted to achieve when I was younger, I hadn't yet achieved the money that I want. I have not yet to 
achieve all the kind of aspirations and dreams and success that I'd hoped for my life, I was nowhere near there. And I remember thinking, well, am I just pointing my arrow in the wrong direction? And if I am, then universe, can you help me point it in the right direction? So in other words, what is my purpose? Why am I here? And if I am here for, for a purpose, tell me what that is so I can do my job. <laughs> and that's it. That's the only thing that that I want. And it, it sounds like a really random conversation because if anyone was filming me, it would literally just be a man in her room looking up at the ceiling, talking to herself. That's literally what it looks like. <laughs> Trust me, I can relate to that. I've said to my team, if anyone would film me, they put me in a padded cell. They would. I'm always talking upstairs. Always. You do, you do, right? And you, you, you are very grateful that no one can see you because you're very much aware of how it may look to the outside public, but it gets the job done. I, I, I'm at my happiest when I'm physically talking to the universe in my room by myself. That is my favorite moments of the day. So I've just, yeah, I've accepted that. And I find that, well, clearly I've been given a response. And I think that's where the the real kind of elation kicks in when you are talking to the, the universe and, and something actually happens, something actually manifests. Um, and so within three weeks of having that conversation, I ended up deciding I was going to work on my self-discipline and just my own personal growth and basically work on the things that I had control over. So if I didn't have control over having an acting job or, or the money or the things that I thought would benefit my life, if I don't have control over that, what do I have control over? And that came to, or came down to my personal growth. And so I decided I would wake up at five o'clock in the morning. This is the first lockdown when everyone was quite demotivated and sad. I decided to just literally go for I don't know, go for the juggler, as I like to say. I literally said, I'm just going to catch up. And little did I know that that in itself was an affirmation. But I, I remember saying quite clearly to the universe, okay, now I'm going to catch up. I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to wish. I'm going to tell you this is what's happening. So I literally said to the universe, this is what's happening. I'm going to catch up. I've wasted 10 years of my life. In the last 10 years, I've been depressed purely because of the fact that I felt as if I was a failed actress. And I need to now work out what am I doing with my life? And the only way I'm going to do that is if I fix things and just make that decision myself. And so once I did, once I made the decision, I was catching up. That is exactly what I did. So I woke up five o'clock in the morning, I would go for a run and then come back home and meditate. And then I would study for six, seven hours a day. And I kept up this routine throughout the whole of lockdown. And then three weeks later, so that's when I went out to get toothpaste and then that's when my life changed. So it did start before the toothpaste moment. It actually started with spirituality. Wow. That's just given me goosebumps. That's so mentally strong, though, to, to actually get up at that hour and stick to a routine. But just to get up at that hour, because I've always wanted to be an early morning person and go running and do that. And in my head, I'm doing it, but there's no way I'm getting up at that hour. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm too knackered because I go to bed late working. And it's exactly that's, that's really yeah. impressive that you set that intention and you didn't waver off that. I've never been like that. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I've never been like that. That's why it was a big deal for me because I've never one of my biggest issues in terms of personal growth was discipline. That was always a thing for me. So as much as I wanted to be an actor, did I work as hard as I should have? Of course not. Did I do the things that I needed to do? Of course not. So it's this irony of wanting something, but not being willing to work hard for it. And so I felt like in that moment of spirituality, it was like, okay, if you are genuinely saying this is what you want, you want to fix your life and point your arrow in the right direction, then you are in control of it and you have to find a way to make things manifest. And so the only way I could do that was to just work on my self-discipline. That was the only thing that I physically could do in that moment during lockdown when <laughs> the world had, had stopped. And for some bizarre reason, there's something amazing and, and really fulfilling about running at five o'clock in the morning when the streets are empty and everyone's in their bed. There's just something very powerful about it, liberating. Did you, at what point then when you went kind of the day that you went out and you got um the whole in, involved with the whole march and everything by accident um at what point did you or did you connect from the three weeks prior of meditating spirituality to having been in this movement like on this day did you 
did you connect to that thinking, oh my gosh, I've been manifesting all this and look where I am now and this is my purpose? It took me a little while because at first you don't quite understand what's happening. So I just, one of the biggest things with the spirituality is tapping into, again, your purpose, but that's connected to your soul and your instincts and your intuition. The biggest thing I was focused on was obviously self-discipline, but listening to my instincts. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily, I don't think it's a thing that's necessarily taught unless your parent is kind of big on teaching you about instincts. It's not really a conversation that the average person has. We kind of just know it's there and we choose to listen to it when we want to. But I found that listening to my instincts at all times created magic. And I didn't realize straight away it took me, it took me, I think, what did it was probably what did it for me there was many oh wow there was many different kind of I wouldn't call them tests but I would call it I would I would ask for something and then let it go so they call it surrender so you just put it out to universe you say in fact sorry not ask apologies that's the wrong word you tell the universe right you tell the universe this is what is happening and then you just let it go and you believe after that moment if it is for you it is for you. What is meant for you is meant for you. What will be, will be, everything happens for a reason. So if, if what it is that you've asked for, if it genuinely is yours, you don't have to wish, you don't have to sit and worry about it, you don't have to fret about it, it will manifest if it is yours. And the minute I believed that wholeheartedly was definitely when I started to see a big shift. And the first thing, the first time I decided I was going to listen to my instincts was when I saw that horde of people walking down the high street in Peckham. So I'm walking down Peckham High Street to go and get the toothpaste and I'm heading towards Superdrug. And then as I'm walking towards Superdrug, I just hear a massive group of people chanting Black Lives Matter in the middle of the road. And I looked up and instinctively, again, it's a very small whisper. It almost, it's almost like a, I, I make a joke and say it's almost like a kind of weird voice that doesn't feel like it's your voice because it's not doesn't really feel like it's coming from you and of course it is so apologies if if I'm it sounds like I'm talking in tongues but it's that really quiet voice (laughs) that just pops up and it's just so faint and that's why it's really easy to ignore because the voice is just so quiet and so delicate but that voice said jump over these roadworks and join this protest that was the exact words almost verbatim um as if I have this kind of alter ego that's guiding me which is again what spirituality really is your instincts and your soul purpose guiding you and so I listened to my my instincts jumped over the roadworks and then the second I think the biggest second or yeah the second pivotal moment was standing on the pillar so once I joined the protest in Peckham I ended up meeting some girls that told me about the protest on the 31st of May and the protest on the 31st of May was the biggest first official London BLM protest and they said come along to it um it would be great you've this is just a small one in Peckham the official one and the first one is is tomorrow the 31st of May so I ended up going with one of the girls that I met and as we arrived at Trafalgar Square everyone was chanting and I remember thinking, okay, where do I look? Who are the organisers? Where are the speakers? Where are the speeches? What? Where do I, again, point my arrow? Where do I look? Where is that focal point in, in, in the crowd? And so my instinct said, stand on this pillar. So that was the second pivotal moment where a small voice just said, stand right here on this pillar. So I listened. And so I stood on the pillar. And then the third would have to be standing on that pillar and having a random mysterious lady tap me on my ankle and say, here you go, here's a megaphone. And that at that point, that's when all the thousands of people that were in the crowd decided to stare back at me, hence oh my um, God. Hence why I was able to, to speak because there was no other speakers, there were no other organisers. That's how I ended up kind of leading from that day, really, from the 31st of, of May. So I think those are the first three kind of pivotal moments, jumping over the roadworks, um, and standing on the pillar and then deciding to use the megaphone as opposed to giving it back to the mysterious lady. <laughs> I'm bent over my computer listening into it like it's going to suck me in because I'm so engaged in what you're saying. <laughs> I look like Gollum here just leaning over my computer. It's just because <laughs> you know what made me really honestly think is 
when you're going jumping over roadblocks, it, it's and this sounds really corny to anyone's listening, but it's the first thing that I started thinking of was like you've had a there was a barrier in front of you and you just went over it because you weren't going to yeah. be stopped this time. Oh wow, I've never looked at it like that. I've never. Oh my god, Karina, no I've way, never looked really? at, Oh my god, Karina. Karina, I've never looked at it like that. That's the first thing I thought of. Wow. Wow. I've never, I've been saying this story for a year and a half and it has never occurred to me that there was a barrier in between me and a purpose. It, no, it never occurred to me, but I've always felt compelled. Isn't that interesting? I've always felt compelled to talk about the barrier. I always say that I jumped over roadworks. I've never, I've never really known why I, I add it into the story, but I know it happens. So therefore I, I, I always include it, but that's a really valid point uh, on a spiritual level. Yeah, there was definitely a barrier in between. I'm telling you, we are meeting. I'm in London. We are meeting. <laughs> I want to yes, meet you so badly. Yes, of course. Please do. Yes, I would love, love to go for a coffee. You're incredible. I, I, it's so, you're on a journey. It's incredible. And it's, I don't know if, I mean, I've got a whole host of questions here, but I'm just so captivated by what you're saying and, and how you've, you've just been given this path to go on um and it's this it's it's found you and it sounds people are listening probably thinking of spirituality whatever but i've experienced all that when you're saying ask to the universe and put it out i've had so many magical moments happen with mission that have just been wild wild because i let go and think i can only do how much i can do and i want this but hey you know i'm just going to keep on trucking i'm just keeping on going with it um so off, uh, after after the the march on the thirty first, um, that obviously changed a lot for you um, mentally and what you you know your next kind of path in life. Um, and you you started to um, I know that you formed the Black Reformers Movement. Now can you can you tell us about this and and why you felt that and what the difference is for anyone that's not listened doesn't understand this or is new to this this kind of topic um there's black lives matter um and then you you felt there was a, a need to form the black reformers movement so i'd love you to just ex- explain that to us and the difference between the two and and the need for the movement you created yes definitely so from the 31st of may i was kind of you're just thrown into this whirlwind and you don't actually realize what's actually happening to you. Um, but you, you quickly acclimatize, right? Because you start to, you know, tune into your instincts and your intuition and both of which are, are quite clearly telling me that I have a purpose and I need to continue to persevere. So you just, you, you try to do what you, what you can do and just try to learn as fast as you can during a very quick journey and a very new and exciting journey. So what I found was, I think on the 31st of May, I didn't quite realise it, but I ended up doing a speech and I, it wasn't a very good speech, admittedly, because I was just thrown into it. I had no idea what I was saying, or I think I swore quite a lot. Again, it's a lack of not knowing what to say. <laughs> and then my speech has definitely improved over time. But I, I quickly realised that day when I did speak, I spoke about institutionalised racism. And I remember giving the megaphone to someone who I happened to see from Peckham um, on the 31st of May. She came and joined me near the the pillar and she spoke about abolition. And so that day I didn't, little did I know that there was clearly two distinct ideologies within the movement, right? So you have abolition for those that believe in the abolition of police, uh, defunding the police, anti-capitalism. Again, it's adopting the same ideology from America. And then you have people that believe in reform, right? Because plenty of people cheered when I spoke about institutionalized racism. So I quickly realized that there were many people that believed in the things that I was happy and and was obviously wanting to talk about. I realized that those people were definitely in the crowd. And so the point that I'm trying to make is within, I don't know, within a week, I quickly realized that the BLM movement in the UK comprises of several ideologies. So like I said, abolition of the police, then you have those that are non-political, so they support the movement um, and believe in the essence of the message, which is anti-racism and Black Lives Matter. And then you have another cohort of people that, um, or another cohort of people like myself, that believe in reform um, and obviously reforming the very institutions that we are talking about and finding ways to implement previous uh, race-related reviews 
to help tackle inequality. These are the things that um, a lot of people that advocate for reform uh, support. So I remember feeling as if there had to be that level of representation for those that believe in reform, especially due to the fact that the media had picked up on the kind of more extremist views and we were therefore put into this homogenous box. And so the BLM movement in the UK was literally just seen as this abolitionist movement. And obviously I can you know, attest to the fact that I am a reformist and an organiser of one of the, if not the biggest BLM protest in London. So I started the Black Reformist Movement purely because I felt like there was just a lot of confusion um, in regards to the BLM movement itself. And a lot of people didn't realise that the movement comprised of several other ideologies. So reform was really important. Just make sure that it was being represented and those voices were being heard. Yes, yes. And and how do you think the, the education system reinforces uh, systematic racism? Oh, wow. There's, there's so many different ways, but I think the biggest definitely comes down to the education system in, in regards to history and the way in which it's taught. And it's very much um, through a, a specific prism, if, if that makes any sense. So it's, it's through the lens of a certain cohort of people, and then they get to uh, kind of express how they believe history or the past. Um, they, they, they're the ones ultimately that are able to kind of, yeah, express to the nation as to how the past kind of informs the present and I feel like because it is through a certain prism a lot of experiences and um, a lot of that representation is missed and so in other words what I find with the with the education system and the way that history is presented it is very much one-sided in terms of I found it to be very much white savior comes along and helps black people white savior comes along and conquers the world, white saviour comes along, makes loads of money, white saviour comes along and and helps not, uh, you know, helps defeat Nazis, white saviour. That was very much all that I was being bombarded with, white saviour narrative uh, from uh, as many different figures as I could think of. They were all very much white um, and were put on a pedal stool and everything else was, was below. And so that in itself is a narrative as a black person, you, you you are conditioned to believe that it's white people that are successful. It's white people that do the good things. It's white people that make the money. It's white people that, you know, these are the, these are the, this is the way that we are conditioned. Have the power. Yeah, it's, it's white people that have the power. And, and if people don't realise that that in itself is a part of our conditioning, then I think it's people just being completely and utterly ignorant, if not delusional, because it is very much one-sided. It, it's told from one perspective. Um, and that is why there is um, this argument to say that white supremacy rules the land because of the way in which things are taught. And if you don't teach the fact that one of the richest people, if not the richest man alive ever to live, rather, was a black man who owned or sorry, who was in charge of the Mali Empire. If you don't include that in history, then you'll just assume that it was white people that, you know, ended up <laughs> colonizing half of the world. In fact, it was 80 percent of world made loads of money and, and defeated the nazis and that's that's more or less the kind of bulk of our history really <laughs> there isn't there isn't anything past that so we don't in terms of slavery and in terms of the black experience and black history which is obviously british history but in terms of the history of black people it seems to only start with slavery we don't go past that. So anyone learning about black people and black history just believed that white people came along, enslaved us and then saved us. That was it. We were all, you know, in, in little bushes with, with no money and no, no garms and no intelligence. We were just roaming around <laughs> in the field. White people came along and enslaved us and then saved us. That's more or less what I, what I got out of my black history class when I was about 10. Um, and little did I know, obviously, 15 years later, realising that the richest people on the planet were black. But no one teaches us that. So we're, we, that affects our self-esteem. So that's what we talk about when we talk about white supremacy. If white supremacy included the fact that black people were originally the richest people on the planet, and then white people ended up getting really jealous, insecure, envious, and then decided to enslave those black people, that's a complete different history lesson, is it not? 
<laughs> it's a completely different history lesson. It would make you think differently about black people. It would make you think differently about white people. And that's not a narrative that I think England would want to uh, project. Not, not, not even the slightest. Everyone wants to put their best foot forward. So I'm not saying it's okay. I can understand why. Well, would America either want to preach, you know, that, what, what country would? Exactly. They don't. They always put their best foot forward, just like we do as human beings. We always want to present our best, our best selves. So I understand it from that point of view. But what's interesting is that people don't realise how much damage it actually does to an entire population of people. <laughs> people just don't realise it's um, it goes over people's heads. Do you think in, in, in the UK there's been, because of all the, um, the protests last year and, and onwards from that, that there's the education system, have, have that there's going to be change in that in schools? Has that made any ripple effect into the education system here, do you think? Not in England, no. So um, Wales has been um, amazing. They've, I think it's, what is it, Wales? Yes, it's Wales. Wales have... Um, included black history into their, um, is it Wales or Ireland? Apologies. It's one of the two. Wales or Ireland, as of last year, have made it mandatory to include black history and colonisation, whereas it's not mandatory in England. So in spite the fact that (laughs) the BLM movement happened in England, there was so much momentum in England, um, it resulted in America uh, or, or some parts of America changing the education system and it resulted in Wales or Ireland changing the education system. But England has been very adamant that they do not wish to present more of a balanced perspective and they would continue, they would like to continue to teach history through that one prism, which is more or less middle class white people that tell us how the world is and how the world was. So yeah, England is very much adamant that they're not changing, but America, Wales and Ireland have definitely progressed. Yes. As of the last year. That's disappointing. That's a shame. That's so disappointing. Yeah, big shame. Massive shame. It's quite ironic. I don't understand how Ireland or Wales or it could have even been Scotland. It's so annoying that I don't have this um statistic. In fact, I might actually find it while we're talking. But it's it's one of the two. So it's Scotland, Ireland or Wales, they've added it. I'm pretty sure it's Wales. They've um made it mandatory. And I just don't understand how England hasn't but Wells has, it just, it's, it just, it's nonsensical. So yeah, I think the consciousness is there, but there are still very powerful people that refuse to, to change things. And that's just left us in a state of, yeah, just a, a very stuck position. We cannot physically move forward and we refuse to move back. <laughs> We're just in this no man's land at the moment in regards to the education system. Um, I want to tap into this um, as well, again, for people that are listening that don't kind of um, to understand what this means. You've you've mentioned before institutionalised racism um, drives poverty and then poverty drives crime and so on and so on. And I'd love you to expand on that. I think you said a few more things like crime drives violence and there's some other things to that. Um, And I'd just love you to expand on that to explain to our listeners that how... um, it has a huge impact in, in I can't even say institutionalized racism has a big impact and I'd love to hear you just explain that to us further. Yeah so basically a lot of people don't realize that there are different forms of racism so as a society we just tend to focus on one form of racism which is overt and that is when someone's racial prejudice is obvious deliberate and direct and that seems to be our frame of reference in England when we think about racism but in actual fact there are three distinct forms so we have overt Then we have covert racism and covert racism is actually the most prevalent form of racism here in the UK. And that is when someone's racial prejudice is hidden or disguised and rationalized with an explanation society would deem acceptable. And then we have institutionalized racism, put simply when um, racial prejudice manifests itself within the workplace, resulting in two things, uh, disparities uh, across the board, Um, So throughout the uh, different uh, levels, you'll have these uh, different race, racial disparities. And then you'll also find that policies, practices and procedures are implemented or designed in a way that actually disadvantages or discriminates against the black or brown community. And so that's institutionalized racism. And what I find is a lot of people don't 
clearly understand the different forms. So it's hard to have a conversation about racism if you only have one perspective, which is overt. Um, but what people don't realise is that it's the covert racism that fuels institutionalised racism. It, is, it isn't overt. So it's not you're not going to find in a workplace people being obvious, deliberate and direct with their racial prejudice. What you'll find people doing is hiding their racial prejudice and then disguising it and giving it a, a different explanation, rationalising it in a way that is okay, that everyone would find acceptable. So for example, if you are a manager, a white manager in a, in a workplace, and there is a black woman that is, um, you've hired a black woman, or sorry, uh, one of your colleagues has hired a black woman, you're now the new manager, and you don't particularly like her because you're just not really that comfortable with black people. So it doesn't necessarily make you a racist, it's just that you're not particularly comfortable with black people. and you end up deciding to fire her. But then you have to fire her and, and, and have a plausible reason as to why you're doing so. So you can easily turn around and say, oh, this, this woman is, is late all the time. And if that is a factual statement, then you can justify your reason for firing her. And obviously little did anyone know, it's just because you actually feel quite uncomfortable around black people, right? So this is covert racism. And that's what fuels institutionalized racism, right? These disparities and, you know, for example, stop and search where black people are being um, uh, stopped nine times more than their white counterparts, right? These are the disparities that we talk about, all the policies and strategies that we see that um, are implemented in a way that disadvantages black people. This is what we see quite regularly. And what's interesting is that because of the fact that institutionalized racism is fueled by hidden racial prejudice, you'll find that all of these disparities affect the community on a larger scale because a lot of these organizations won't have black managers, won't have uh, black CEOs or black directors. Um, and so there is, there is this huge disparity when it comes to race throughout the different institutions. And so then what happens is, those black people that are now um, in a position where they're being disadvantaged, um, they are they end up being the kind of cohort of people that ultimately end up living in poverty. And so when you end up living in poverty because most organizations don't want to hire you as a black woman and make you a manager and give you the huge salary. Um, they might hire you on, at a small level, but in terms of trying to be, in, in terms of being given a senior position, um, again, these are the disparities that we talk about. So a lot of people end up having to just try to do whatever they can to make ends meet. And so that's where the poverty comes in. And so when you are poor, if you are struggling, it can get to a point for the average person where you will do whatever it, it takes or by any means necessary um, to look after yourself and to get yourself out of that state of, of depression and sadness. And so you'll find that a lot of people, um, there is a, a cohort of people within the black and brown community that will um, resort to selling drugs or, or, or what we call it is, you know, the road life, right? Which is when you, you find another way, it's a path of least resistance, actually, you find another way, a quick way to make money, right? So if you can't get, if you're not hired as a manager, in a, a predominantly white organization that you know you're likely to have to deal with racism. If you're not, if you, if you don't have that luxury, then what else do you do? Do you just stay in the position that you're in and, and be poor? Or do you find another way, a path of least resistance to make money? And that's what a lot of people do. And so they end up going from the disparities because of institutionalized racism. So again, like I said, no management, management positions, you don't get you know, a nice huge salary. So then you end up having to deal with poverty or struggling with with money. And then it turns into, well, I have to get myself out of this position. What are the options for me? And then some people resort to um, the road life, selling drugs, and then selling drugs is uh, connected with violence. And so it, it's more or less a, a trickle effect. You can't have one without the other. Institutionalized racism is what drives poverty. And then poverty is what drives violence. So it, it literally is back to back. And I don't think people look at it from that perspective. They don't. They don't. Well, I, I, I think a lot of people maybe haven't had that experience um, and been able to be like that to survive like that. But you have to do whatever you can. Yeah. If you think about it from 
sorry, I was just going to say, when you think about it from the perspective of racism, so if we know that organisations and people are um, racist or, or they have racial prejudice, and if you are a young black boy growing up in, I don't know, for example, southeast London, you come from a working class background, you may live in an estate um, and you want to find yourself, you want to get yourself a job. But trying to get yourself a job, you know that if you're interviewed by a white person and you're black from Peckham, you might not. Um, there might be certain stereotypes that people associate you with. There might be you might end up having a stigma due to the fact that you come from Peckham. Um, there might just be different or Southeast London. I use Peckham because that's where I'm from. Um, but if you think about it from that perspective, that person does not want to be in an all white organization with people that that want to touch their hair and tell them to not bring in smelly food in the office and are racially prejudiced, but try to hide it. That the average black person does not want to be around that and does not want to have to deal with those types of issues. So if there is a, a path of least resistance, if there is another way to make that money without having to deal with the racism, then to me that actually, when you look at it from that perspective, take all emotions out of it, it actually makes a lot of sense. If, if one way isn't working for you, logic that takes you're going to try to find the quickest path possible that allows you to have um that same that same objective and so when when you see people or certain cohorts of people within the black community selling drugs bearing in mind that again you can't have one without the other it's white people that are buying the drugs so that's that's categorically fact a lot of um people don't actually talk about that if the same black people that are stigmatized the only reason why they have a job is because white people take drugs and take cocaine for example and cocaine is one of the most lucrative when it comes to selling drugs so it's it's ironic that people kind of look at it from one one side but again it's the path of least resistance for the black person um or that that person who believes that working in a racist institution just isn't right for them and is too much hassle but they still need to make money and you can make a lot of money doing bad things and that's not that doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It just means that you are human. You try to find the path of least resistance. How do I get money without having to be around a load of racists? People just no, don't, don't ever don't. look at it like no, that. No, they don't. No. <laughs> they never don't. That's why you see so many people famous, want to be a music uh, musician, want to be a rapper, because they are their own boss to an extent, obviously to an extent, but they are their own boss. They get to be the master of their creativity. Um, and that's all that the average person wants to just be their own true self and not be kind of held down by another entity. And within these organizations, black people are held down, hence why very few of them are in senior roles. It's only recently that we started seeing organizations um, initiate diversity and inclusion. But the reality is diversity and inclusion has been around for around 11 years. And yet it's only now that we're kind of <laughs> pushing black representation. So this is the point that I'm trying to make, which is there's been very little room for us in these establishments. And once we do get in there, we have to contend with racism. So a lot of people just find another route, basically. And how, how can people help and contribute to the black reformers movement? Ah, so I think that the first thing that I tend to say is if anyone does want to support, then I'd say do a workshop. The reason why is because the workshops ultimately it's all about what it is that I represent and what I represent is building awareness about the different forms of racism and having those deep conversations. And I think if anyone wants to support the black reformists, I think it is about education, educating people, educating yourself. Um, and from that point, you can then start to do other things, whether it is stepping out on your own and doing things within your own community or, or helping support black reformist movement when we do different uh, community ventures. But I think there's many things that can be done, but to be honest with you, the first thing I'd say is do a workshop. Learn. If you don't understand racism and how it manifests and the different forms of racism, how you support is by learning that. Is that, is that something that um, your organisation offers as, as workshops then? Yes, so we do workshops and seminars and talks and it's been amazing. Um, I've been working with schools and organisations recently. So I did something with Ralph Lauren at the beginning of the year with um, about 350 staff and I've just started working with colleges so I recently did um, B6 College which was so much fun and that was actually about uh, more to do with kind of 
spirituality and well-being and mental health with a, a hint of activism so that was quite a fun fun workshop so yeah i i, I find that i i tailor my workshops to the organization or to the person um but ultimately i offer workshops to do with again building awareness about the different forms of racism and then i also build um i also talk about life tools and and there are different categories within the life tools workshops but again that's bringing it back to personal growth and i think i'd be a failure if I didn't combine personal growth with my activism. So if I can help people grow as an individual and teach them about racism, then that's yes, probably the yes. best, <laughs> best position for me. Well, that's your that's been your your growth with your your journey, yeah, since last March 2020s. And it's you're kind of paying it forward to others. This is how I've experienced it and what it's done and changed your life massively. Exactly. That and that's why. It's so important for me to spread light. I always say that that's like my quotes, to spread light and to spread love and to spread knowledge. And I just think it would be remiss of me to try to talk about racism without trying to get people to better themselves individually, um, because that's the only way that I know how to do it, because that's what I did. I've gone on such a beautiful personal growth journey. I think the personal growth journey has been far more exciting for me than the actual journey itself. To know that I'm a complete different person than I, I was a year ago um, is really important for me because it makes me think, OK, by the time I, I hit 40, I'll have less vices. I'll be a nicer person. I'll be more grounded. Or, you know, you just you, the whole aim of life, in my humble opinion, is to strive to be better, to be the best version of yourself. So I have to talk about personal growth and I have to talk about racism. And I think you combine the two, you can make a lot of progress with a person. Yes, yes, definitely. Were you always quite um, spiritual or, or um, because it just, it seems such a, you're so natural. Yeah, there's, because I think you've got to be born with, I I feel there's got, you've got to accept it um, and be open to change and open to um, just, you just got to be open to it mentally, I think, and ready for it. Definitely. I've always, I've always been like that. I've always, most of my conversations, in fact, 90% of my conversations growing up from secondary school to college was all about, I was always that person that was talking about the future and trying to find ways to better ourselves. Even when no one wanted to talk about personal growth, I was always talking about, okay, where are we going to be at 25? What do you want to achieve by 30? That was always me. That was always my mentality. I was I was that person to the point where it would get boring because most people just want to talk about, I don't know, fun stuff. But that to me was fun to talk about, to be 19 and talk about where you want to be by the time you hit 30. I could talk about that all day. In fact, I did. I spent most of my life talking about the future. So I think that was what contributed to my depression because all my life I had any conversation, any interaction I had, it was always about being a better version of yourself in a few years time and what is what does that look like and what do you want it to look like those are my favorite conversations on the planet I could be 15 in like the playground at school and I'd be talking about right what are we going to do at 25 how are we going to make it girls what are we going to that was me I was always that person that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself at a young age ah but that's why I got depressed that's exactly why I got depressed I've always been like that from 14, 15, and then when it didn't happen. So imagine you're in school, 14, 15, and you're every day of your life talking to your friends, motivating your friends about hitting 25 and having a car and having a house, all the trivial things that you think are important in life at 15. So I would talk about these things. And then when I got to 25 and hadn't achieved any of them, and this is 10 years later, this was definitely the thing that sparked the depression because I couldn't quite understand why my soul was so enthusiastic about the future and so inspired and so eager to inspire. That's the thing, right? I was just so eager to inspire and to get people to look at life on a deeper level and want to be the best versions of themselves. So I couldn't understand the God, like love nor money, (laughs) why I hadn't achieved that for myself. It made absolutely no sense. And that was why I spent about 10 years depressed. And then all of a sudden I get to March 2020, I'm completely and utterly done with 10 years of depression. I'm now sorting out my life, whether I like it or not. Three weeks later, life changes. So yeah, that's, that's, that's it. 
come on, we, we're we going to have to wrap this up, but I promise you I'm going to shoot you an email after this and we are meeting. And I, I actually would like to do another podcast because this is such – the topics you talk about and, and educate us, me and our listeners on, it's – we haven't done it justice, and I really would like to do another one with you and, and dive deeper in and understand oh, it more because it's, we have such a young audience as well. Um, and I think it's really – important that you know the younger generation the next generation kind of like you said have all the tools to move forward in life um and and succeed but also have that educational element about everything you've discussed um i think that you know everything you have to say it's it's for every age group but i want the younger generation to hear more really um of just your wisdom and and your you know what you've learned and just Gosh, you're just, I have to ask another question. Are you still getting up at five in the morning and going running? When I don't have anything crazy on. So admittedly, I've had to adjust my my schedule purely because I am now working. Whereas at the time when I was running at five o'clock, I had no money and no job. So now I'm an actual activist. Um, I can't always wake up at five, but whenever I'm not actually doing anything, which um, I've been quite busy recently, so I've dropped the ball just a little bit, but... On my days off, so on a random Sunday, um, I will wake up at five o'clock in the morning. So I'm, I'm definitely holding on to it because it's the thing that gave me life. So it feels wrong to let it go. <laughs> yeah, I think running mentally, I've always wanted to be a runner. I just don't have the, I haven't had the time to do it, um, to really get into it. But mentally, it's it's huge, hugely helpful mentally. I love it with that. Well, I'm going to say thank you. And this is part one. Believe yeah. me. Now I want to say thank you, Karina. Honestly, Mr. Mag is amazing. And that article, human article, was just beautiful. To see my my um my article in there. That, I mean, sorry, the the uh human issue was beautiful. And to see my article in there was just perfection. Well, very again, that's part one. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know it's so bad. I could literally sit here and talk for another hour. So yes, send me an email, gal. Get on the phone. We'll, we'll arrange something. I know. Yes. I know. I will. I will. I will. Definitely. We'll meet up. And um, yeah, we, we uh, there's more I'm, I'm planning that I want to speak to you about. So that's, it's all to come. But thank you so much for giving me us so much of your time today. I really appreciate it. Yay. Oh, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. I'm in to listen to Iman. Our next guest up is someone I went to art school with and have remained friends ever since. He has spent the last few years building a platform supporting people struggling with mental health. That platform is Fika. Nick, like I, had a tragedy happen that then changed his course in life. In 2014, he lost his best friend to suicide. This was a hugely pivotal time for Nick, who then made it his life mission to help others struggling with mental health. With his co-founder, they started to build what is now the FICA Mental Fitness Programme. We look forward to welcoming you back for this episode. Thank you and take care.